Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, an annual report reveals the well-being of Georgia's children. It's the Kids Count Data Report. 20% 20% of Georgia kids are still living in poverty. 28% of kids are living in homes where their parents lack secure employment. That conversation just ahead. In other news, President Donald Trump is expected in Atlanta today around 3 p.m. This is the president's ninth trip to Atlanta since taking office. He's scheduled to visit the UPS hub at Hartsfield-Jackson to announce the easy enough environmental review requirements for major infrastructure projects. It's a move critics are describing as the dismantling of a 50-year-old environmental protection law. A White House spokesperson emphasized today's visit is not a campaign stop. Meanwhile, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases continue to increase by the thousands each day in Georgia. Now, according to the Georgia Department of Health right now, there are 123,000 963 confirmed COVID-19 cases, and there are 3,054 related deaths that have been reported. Also, 13,685 people are hospitalized. Of that number, more than 2,600 are ICU admissions. That, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Health. In other coronavirus-related news, Piedmont Healthcare is working with the state to accommodate a potential surge of patients. Now, Piedmont's Atlanta Hospital is adding 62 beds with the option to add more. Patients will be treated at the Marcus Tower of the Piedmont Atlanta campus, and the state will help with staffing. From the governor's office, this facility is expected to be fully operational within the next week. And some news from one of the nation's big box stores, Walmart, will now require customers to wear face coverings at all its stores and its subsidiary, Sam's Club. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, here locally, two parent-driven organizations are stepping up to help some of the families within the Atlanta public school districts. These families may be struggling with housing, food insecurity, or other needs. Atlanta Thrive and the Latino Association for Parents and Public Schools are the two organizations. And the two groups are also concerned about equity within the district and resources for low-income students and their households. Now, recently I spoke with Ricardo Miguel Martinez, president of the Latino Association for Parents and Public Schools, and Kimberly Dukes, executive director of Atlanta Thrive. And a note of disclosure, as always, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for you having so us. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for your time. Let's begin, before we get into what you all are, are doing and also some of the concerns you have, let's just talk about the toll this pandemic has had on students 
and their families. And I know you all are in direct communication with them. And Kimberly, I'll start with you. What are you hearing from parents? Parents are heartbroken um, because we, like you all know, before the pandemic, the inequities was really large. And me and Ricardo has been fighting for equity for a long time. So the parents and the children that are in the lowest um, income communities and the lowest performing schools, a lot of the learning stopped. Um, the people that had great schools or better schools, the learning stopped as well. But um, you heard the superintendent say that technology is not the only way. But during the pandemic, that was the only way that we can continue to connect the learning with our children. Mm -hmm. So. I'm a mom of 10, so educating 10 kids in one household relationships not being built with the schools, it was impossible. Mm -hmm. So, so many parents and grandparents, they don't know where their kids are. Um, learning loss was really big. Um, we really believe kids are going to need assessment so that we'll know where our kids are when school start back and the school will know. And at the same time, we have to add a piece of accountability um, there so that we can hold the schools accountable to continue to push our children because not only are the kids south of 20 are behind, it's kids all across the nation that are behind. And we have to do it as a whole and work together um, as a community um, to make sure that we push our children forward and to continue to educate them anytime, any place. Um, the pandemic should not stop learning. And I just got, thank God opened up our eyes um, to how we have to reimagine school because it has to be a new way. We just cannot go back to the way it was mm -hmm. and parents have to be at the forefront and at that table to help make these decisions when it comes to their children. But parents are heartbroken because we are educators, but we didn't know how. Mm -hmm. So I just want the school system to know as well, like we need to think about relationships and that's something that me with Atlanta Thrive and the Ricardo and Lap do really well relationships is everything, Rose. You have to deepen our relationships and really understand and learn the families and the communities. Mm -hmm. And that's how you know um, what parents and children need help with. Yeah. Uh, Ricardo, let me get your thoughts. What are you hearing from parents? You heard Kimberly say parents are heartbroken. There are already some issues before the pandemic, and this was just an extra added burden. What are you hearing from parents? Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been it's been really hard. Um, Scott, um, let's back up to the beginning of this pandemic, uh, two or three, four days into the thing when it started, I was already getting phone calls uh, from parents that were crying and just at a loss of um, not even school, man. They weren't they weren't even worried about school was not even at the forefront of their front or the back of their minds. It was, hey, I'm having to sell my car to pay rent. Hey, I'm having to sell my valuables to pay for groceries. Hey, I'm getting ready to be kicked out of my home. Who do I contact? Um, luckily, we made had made inroads previously um, through our hard work in the last three or four years with the uh, Office of Immigrant Affairs Welcoming Atlanta, uh, mm -hmm. an initiative of the uh, mayor's office, uh, City of Atlanta mayor's office. And um, they were able to connect us to folks within APS that were really, really, really on the verge of getting kicked out, where they were having to bring lawyers from the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Association mm -hmm. um, to stop um, folks getting kicked out of their houses. And I mean, you're talking about single parents with two or three, four or five kids that landlords, you know, um, unfortunately in our community, you know, because, uh, in a, as you know, our, our community is fairly infant in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Um, a lot of our folks are undocumented. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not all of them, but a, a large majority of the folks that are here and they're in the service industry, they're the folks that fluff your pillows or the, they put food on your plate. Um, those folks couldn't stop going to work. Those folks continue to go to work and those folks were getting infected. 
Um, and at the moment that we really had to stay at home, now you've got parents that were staying at home that weren't making money, that were threatened, being threatened with kicking out of their homes, that were having to sell their valuables, that were having to sell their possessions. And to be honest with Scott, there was a large majority of folks that, you know, you got to remember our community is a transient uh, uh, community that, that, that migrates. We migrated from other countries, you know, in the 20th, 21st century. Um, it's not a big deal for somebody to say, hey, hold up, this pandemic is not working out. I'm going to get my valuables. I'm going to put my kids in the car and we're moving an hour and a half outside of Atlanta to go get a live in a place where we can afford it. Mm-hmm. And apparently the factories are still running. Well, I come from one of those communities where there is a factory. And let me tell you what, the pandemic was worse there than it was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we still want to act like things are not happening and we want to go back to normal. Um, you know, I'd like to say that science is more important than opinions. Um, our people have been suffering from the very beginning. We're three months into the thing and we're just now starting to come to this realization like, oh, wow, people are really hurting. No, friends, people were hurting a day or two into it. I've been saying this and people, you know, are finally starting to pay attention of, you know, what Atlanta public school was before the pandemic is not going to be the same moving forward. People Mm -hmm. have moved. People have, um, you know, you got to understand, guys, like Kim and I are going through the pandemic just like everybody else. We don't sit in an ivory tower. We're out in the communities. They're calling us and they're telling us all these hardships. You got to understand, like, that emotional toll takes effect on people. Like, I still have to come home and, and, and make sure that I give 110% to my children and my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not an excuse not to do that, but also my community needs us to lead. Um, And and, and unfortunately, there's a lot of folks in in, in positions of power that would rather sit in their ivory towers and get in these communities and really hear what these people are going through. And it's just, it's, you would think that it would not happen in Atlanta or maybe even in the United States, but it's happening, right? It's happening and it's unacceptable. In the meantime, you all have been doing what you can to help families financially. I believe you all had a, maybe up to $100,000 that you are able to help families. What Was this mostly with rent and, and getting food? Yeah, well, well we're, we're excited to be here with you, Rose, to talk about this FUBU ATL fund. So for anybody that's interested, uh, we launched a FUBU ATL fund, which is a For Us, By Us Atlanta fund uh, to help these families that we know are always at the back of the line, uh, never get help uh, from, from normal measures of public assistance, whether it be state or federal, um, probably are not computer savvy to go and fill out forms. Or to be honest with you, you know, and speaking to families and, and, and also with Thrive, like they just don't want to share their personal lives. It's mm-hmm. no one's business. And you got, and we require them to tell you well, this, what's going on here and what's going on there mm-hmm. for you to get a little check. So, you know, Thank goodness for our partner, uh, specifically the nonprofit organization Redefine Dad, mm-hmm. uh, whose mission is to make sure that every child gets a quality education. They identified Atlanta Thrive and LAPS as the best position to be able to get this money to the front line. So through a combination of a few different ways, uh, FUBUATLFund.com, uh, where folks were able to go in there with the English and Spanish application and fill it out. We also have been partnering with organizations around Atlanta, like the Welcoming Atlanta Office of Immigrant Affairs mm-hmm. and APS Partnerships. We're super excited about uh, calling that one out. Uh, we've partnered up with the Office of uh, Partnerships Division out of Atlanta Public Schools, and we partnered up with 25 plus schools and their administration to directly identify families within the, uh, uh, the system mm-hmm. that are needing help. We're trying to make this as easy as possible mm-hmm. and make sure also that uh, we are accountable ourselves. Again, this is mm-hmm. not personal. We hired a third-party agency to make sure that they called and verify that everybody is who they say they are. Mm-hmm. And more than anything, just to make sure that the check that is going to be sent out gets to them by where it's being mailed to. Um, so this has been 
probably like a three or four month effort. Um, and we're just excited because to your point, like the money was to go for anything that families needed, food insecurity, rent, mm. bills, education. I, I know I prioritize people that didn't have tablets or, or, or digital devices um, to help their kids. But at the same time, you can't turn your back to the folks that are getting their lights cut off or can't afford to buy $250 worth of groceries for their kids. So this was for basic, very basic needs. And as you can imagine, we liquidated that other than the money that we set aside for, for APS partnerships, that was liquidated. So, um, and there's a lot of other organizations that are doing the same great work. So there's a lot more need than the $100,000 that we've been able to give out, which has been a godsend can you all still help some people? Because when this airs, I'm sure folks might want to get in touch with you. Are you all in a position to still help some folks? So right now, currently, we have the last bit allocated to APS partnerships. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would, yes, we are in the sense of that if they please log on to FUBUATLfund.com and keep track of what's going on there. And the other thing is I would say, please, 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 please. Please follow us on social media at LAPSGA, L-A-P-P-S-G-A, L-A-P-P-S-G-A, and at the Atlanta Thrive, because uh, we are currently in the process of possibly securing more funds. Mm -hmm. um, the moment that those come, funds come online, uh, we're going to put it on the website, and we're going to make sure that folks are, uh, that it's a fair process, right? Mm -hmm. We've, that's been always our, our number one strategy, and obviously our partner strategies, make sure that we are transparent, and that we are fair, and we are accountable. So, uh, we look to be able to tap into more funds. Uh, we're working hard to make sure that we identify them um, and try to, uh, uh, we've been applying for a few more funds mm -hmm. and hope that we can get some more to, to get that money into the parents directly. Yes, ma'am. As we wrap up and Kimberly, I'll start with you. And it's a question I've been asking, I think for months now about lessons learned from this pandemic and particularly as it relates to the future of, of how we educate kids in the public school system in this nation. What is your takeaway from this, Kimberly, in terms of what you hope changes about how we educate students in our public school system and particularly students from low-income families? So what I can say is the expectation and the demand. Well, Atlanta Thrive, we have pushed out a parent manifesto, um, and we have over 817 signatures. We're saying four things. One every child need an individualized learning plan. Every child needs to have a full assessment before November the 1st. Um, we're also saying every child needs a laptop or a learning device with all of the um, programming that you guys want and also classes for parents so that parents can help engage and teach their children. Mm -hmm. And if parents are not comfortable with sending their children back into these buildings because of COVID-19, then don't hold these parents accountable for that. If parents are not comfortable with this virtual learning platform that you are offering, allow those parents to take that money and to go find the best virtual learning program in the world. And I feel like um, that's what we have to do moving forward. We have to demand the best and we have to stay and take a stance on what we believe in and stand together and fight for our children. So I just ask that everybody go and like Ricardo said, follow us at the Atlanta Thrive, sign our petition, click your, click the button to say yes, we can share your name and just stand with us because every day we get up, we're fighting for the black and brown kids in the lowest income communities in Atlanta public school system community. All right, Ricardo, what about you? What is your takeaway from all of this and what you hope changes come out of this, particularly as it relates to what this pandemic has exposed that some of us knew and others didn't? But And I, I, I hope that we shock the system into rethinking 
this normalization of failure. The fact that white kids in Atlanta are reading at a 77 percentile, uh, Latinos are reading at like right at 18, 20, and, and African Americans are reading right at 15, 16. Uh, that means that one out of one out of every six black kids is is considered illiterate. And in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States of America, in the year 2020, no one cares. Um, and that you, you really believe that that no one cares, Ricardo. You really believe that? Well, Miss Scott, we went and talked with you, you about this about the equity report back in January, February, and mm -hmm. nobody has called us to talk about that. So, mm -hmm. you tell me if anybody cares. Has anybody called you, Rose Scott, in the Rose Scott Show to talk about the APS equity report since we were presented it to you? They have not. Then there's the answer to your question. Let me ask you this, Ricardo, and, and Kimberly, you can chime in on this too, because what accountability does the school board have in all this too, since we're talking about Atlanta Public Schools? So the, the accountability that it's not a whole lot of accountability. That's why we've been fighting for accountability and equity. Um, but when parents fully understand that the school board selects the superintendent and the school board vote on whatever the superintendent plan is, then parents know who's making those decisions. So you have to hold your school board accountable. So you have to know what, what cluster you live in. You have to know who represents your district. You have to email, you have to write, and you have to make them listen to you. You have to get the people in your community to do the same thing because that's what's not happening. And once they see that we are going to hold the school board members accountable, then they act and they vote in, your, in, in, in favor of the people. And if they don't, like Ricardo said, we have to get together and vote them out because those are the people that make the decision for our kids. So if you are sitting in District 1 or and, and you're not making the best decision for those kids, the parents have to get together and say there's a problem. On the north end and in certain schools, when parents don't agree with the principal, they stand outside and they protest. And that's what Atlanta Thrive is. We'll stand and we'll protest and say, we don't agree with this. Mm -hmm. And that's how you raise awareness and hold people accountable. In Atlanta, sometimes you have to embarrass people for people to do right by your children. Or sometimes people act as if they don't know what's right. So we have to show you. And for me, that's what accountability looks like. All right. uh, Ricardo, what about the accountability for the school board here? I don't want to get too political. I, like I said, I like to base my discussion. Well, they're elected officials, so. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Trust me, I know, I know, Rose. I just. And I'm asking you to, and, and look, your answer is your I, I'm answer. I'm going to answer, trust me. I would tell you that, preface this with, I don't go around imposing my views on any of our parents. I, I show them I show them the facts. Mm -hmm. I show them what is happening in their schools. I give them the, the down and dirty uh, equity report figures. And I let them make their own assumptions and their own what, whatever they feel. What I will say about the current situation is that it can't just be Atlanta Thrive and LAPS holding school board members accountable when they, everything that happens in your community is based off the public education system. If you're not registered to vote, you need to go get mad at your principal for not showing you what civics means in your community, right? We were fighting the strategic plan. You want to know what accountability looks like? Let's talk about accountability. We were fighting the strategic plan that got passed in January or February. Mm -hmm. uh, what we were demanding was for there to be quick, actionable action taken into the schools that have been failing generations for 20, 30 years. We were, action, we were asking for quick, uh, uh, take what's working in schools that's working and move it across and, and make sure that you implement it in other schools. They, did, they decided not to put it in that in there. You know what that would have done? that would have started to move the needle in schools and kids that have been failing for generations. 
You know that? There was a few folks on the school board that were all for it. They were, yeah, let's do it. And then there was a few folks that, for whatever reason, uh, sit in a certain part of town where things are hunky-dory and there is no emergency action to be taken, where no red flags are raised, that said, no, we're fine. Nothing needs to be done. We're doing great. Now, you tell me how there is accountability in that, because you know what that led to? They didn't listen to us. They didn't make any changes in that strategic plan. Where is the accountability in that, Rose? Ricardo Miguel Martinez, president of the Latino Association for Parents of Public Schools. And I was also joined by Kimberly Dukes, executive director of Atlanta Thrive, the two organizations coming together. First, helping parents who are in need during this pandemic and also wanting some direct and clear initiatives from the school system. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Scott, thank you as always for 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 putting these uncomfortable situ- uh, conversations at the forefront. Um, and thank you. I really mean. I know both Kim and I talk about this religiously. Like, thank you to our teachers. Thank you to our administrators. Thank you to the staff. Thank you to everybody that puts their you know every day goes to make sure that they do the best they can for, their, for these kids. Um, we're just trying to work together to make sure that we can get the best possible outcome and excellence. That's it. And thank you guys so much. We really really mean that. And thank you, Miss Scott, and everybody there. Thank you, and y'all keep those kids busy. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T.edu. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This time next year, well, no one can predict what state our nation or the world, for that matter, will be in. Surely there will be lots of studies and reports all revealing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in nearly every quality of life metric. We shall wait and see. Meanwhile, an annual report that tracks the, quote, child well-being nationally and state by state, well, it's out. It's the Kids Count Data Book, and it ranks states by, well, how well children are doing. It's published by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. So how are Georgia's children and their families faring? Let's welcome to the program Rebecca Rice, the Georgia Kids Count Manager. Rebecca, welcome back to the program. I believe this is our third conversation about this annual report. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Rose. Before we dissect this year's Kids Count data book, which is based on, I think, 2018 and 2019 data, I want to look to the future yep. for a moment, because due to the pandemic, are you all having challenges in assessing data for next year's report? Oh, um, it's going to be a completely different data landscape next year. There's going to be a completely new context for data, education data, child welfare data, economic and housing data. Um, everything's health data, obviously, um, Mm -hmm. everything's going to be different next year. We can't 100% predict all of it, but we know that there's going to be a major change to the data world next year. And so these data really show us where Georgia had vulnerabilities before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but we know that going forward, everything is going to look different with the data landscape. 
Wow. And for our listeners who are not aware why this kids count data book is so important, let them in on why you all do this. Sure, um, because I think it's really important to make sure that the people who make decisions um, in our state, in our country, in our communities, know how children are doing and know where we need to do better for our kids. I mean, this year, Georgia is ranked 38th in the nation for child well-being. Um, when this all started 30 years ago, we were 48th. So we've certainly made improvements, but it clearly shows us that we still have a long way to go. One in five kids in Georgia is still growing up in poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, We still need to make gains across the education domains. We rank 46th in the nation um, for our health domain for children. So clearly there's still a lot of room to improve in Georgia. And so we're going to take a deeper dive into those in just a moment. But let's begin with Georgia's overall ranking 38th in the nation for mm-hmm. overall child and family right. well-being. So how is that defined when you say the overall child and family well-being? Sure. So the Casey Foundation uses 16 indicators across four domains. Those domains are education, economic well-being, health, and family and community. And there are four different indicators in each of those domains. And so every state is measured across those 16 indicators and then ranked as to where they fall among those 16 indicators. And Georgia came out 38th. And that was the same as we were last year as well. So we haven't gotten worse than last year, but we haven't improved. Well, what does that say to you, though? I mean, you all as the analysts and researchers, Mm -hmm. I guess it's okay since you didn't move in the negative, but. Sure. (laughs) You know? Yeah. um, Well, you know, we always kind of say with rankings, every state wants to improve faster than the other states. So we're all kind of trying to move. And from a data standpoint, it can be difficult to change ranks because it means you have to not only get better, but get better faster than any other state is trying to get better. Um, so we, if we, when we look at the longer term trends, so when you compare most of these indicators, um, the 2018 and 2019 data that we have in this book to the 2010 data, the majority of them are better than they were in 2010. Um, So the trends generally are moving in the right direction, but we would certainly like to see more improvement. And let's begin with Georgia ranking 35th for economic well-being. What indicators do you all measure for this? And you mentioned poverty. Sure. So children in poverty is one of the indicators. Children whose parents lack secure employment. Children living in households with a high housing cost burden and teens not in school and not working. Those are the four indicators in the economic well-being um, section. And so across Georgia is actually doing better than it was in 2010 across all of those measures, um, which is good news. But we would kind of also expect that because 2010 was sort of the height of some of our recession indicators. So we would hope that our 2018 and 19 indicators would be better than our 2010 indicators. And they are. um, But we still, like I said, have room to improve. 20% of Georgia kids are still um, living in poverty. Um, 28% of kids are living in homes where their parents lack secure employment. 30% are living in a household with a high housing cost burden. Um, And so, you know, there are still barriers to economic success for children and their families. Before we continue looking at some other areas, where does the data come from? So um, the majority of it comes from the Census Bureau, from surveys taken by the Census Bureau. A lot of them are from what's called the American Community Survey. Um, Another source for the education data is what's called the National Association of Economic Progress. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's there are national surveys that are taken the same way in every state. And so that's why they're able to make state by state comparisons. And so for some of these indicators that rank Georgia 37th or 38th, then I imagine there's a correlation because now I want to look at education. So if we've, if we've been talking about economic mm-hmm. well-being and then a little bit later we're going to talk about health, then it wouldn't be a surprise that an indicator such as education would probably be somewhere at least within a, a 10 point ranking difference there because they all they all intersect at some point. Oh, yeah. I mean, we always say that no data exists in a vacuum. These are all interconnected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're we're 35th in economic well-being. And we're 37th in education and making sure that our kids are prepared to go out into the world and be as successful as possible absolutely plays into our economic well-being. Um, and so we do know that we 37th is better than we were on education. But we, again, know that there's room to improve. And then, Rebecca, this 39th for family and community. Mm-hmm. Dissect that a little further for our listeners. Yeah. So the, the indicators that make up the family and community domain are children living in single parent families, children in families where the household head lacks a high school diploma, children living in high poverty areas, and teen births per 1,000. And so children living in high poverty areas is actually different than children living in poverty because it kind of speaks to neighborhoods and communities rather than to individual family units. So again, for three out of four of those indicators, we're doing better than we were in 2010. So that's improvement. Um, But again, we're still um, worse than the national average for all of those indicators. Before we get into the health ranking, which Georgia, this is low, came Mm -hmm. in at 46th, but I want to Stop for a moment and pause for a moment, because, as you know, state lawmakers did pass that measure related to maternal mortality. Now, some proponents will say Mm -hmm. they didn't get everything they wanted. But House Bill 1114 just now needs to be signed by Governor Mm -hmm. Kemp. And that would actually extend Medicaid for low income mothers from two to six months postpartum. How much of a factor was Georgia's maternal mortality in this health ranking? So maternal mortality is not an indicator in this particular ranking. Really? But low birth weight is. Okay. Yes. That's, maternal mortality is not um, an indicator that's used in this particular ranking. Um, but low birth weight is, and low birth weight is something that also speaks to maternal health. Um, and unfortunately, Georgia's rate of low birth weight has been getting worse for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually, I think we have the third worst low birth weight rate in the nation. And for those of who aren't familiar with the term low birth weight, it means that a baby who is born weighing less than five and a half pounds at birth. Um, and unfortunately, being born low birth weight is the single strongest predictor of a, an infant dying before it reaches its first birthday. And it also tells us that we have maternal health issues in our state. And that trend stands for the nation as well. We're not the only state seeing increases in low birth weight. But so, Rebecca, when we talk about right. then in this health domain, what are the other indicators you all are looking at? Sure. The other indicators besides low birth weight babies are children without health insurance child and teen deaths per 100,000, and children and teens ages 10 to 17 who are overweight or obese. And actually, this is the first year that the KC Foundation has included the children and teens who are overweight or obese um, in their measures, so we don't have a lot to compare it to historically. Um, But what we do know is that it shows that 31% of um, children and teens are overweight or obese, and that matches the national average at 31%. Um, We know that 8% of kids in Georgia, according to this particular metric, don't have health insurance. 
that's better than it was in 2010 when 10% of kids didn't have health insurance, um, but it's higher than the national average of 5% of kids who don't have health insurance. And then child and teen deaths per 100,000, um, we're better than we were in 2010, but again, higher than the national average. Rebecca, is there an indicator that you all use for mental health or access to mental health resources in any of these domains? So not in this particular report, but I would say that because I work for a statewide organization that supports um, a network of collaboratives in every single county, a lot of them work with partners at the local level to um, get some kind of mental health proxy. There's there's simply the paucity of mental health data, unfortunately. Um, So, you know, we can look at some study data and there are a few places where we can get um, things like uh, deaths by suicide. But other than that, there's not a ton of standardized mental health data that we can compare across states year over year. Rebecca, let me ask you this also, because you all put this report out each year. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, how do you all measure what effect this Kids Count data book has on states? Is the data used to seek legislation or policy changes? How are you all able to measure yeah. the effectiveness of this information because it's very detailed. Sure. Well, absolutely. And I mean, we put it out in co- in coordination with the Annie Casey Foundation, where she puts it out in every single state. Um, and so for us, we hope that, first of all, our network of county collaboratives in every single county in Georgia, we hope that they use these data to look at how they can make their communities better for children and families. But then also, yes, we absolutely want this to be shared with advocates, with legislators, with policymakers. Um in every shape and form to make sure that they are working with the most accurate up-to-date data about where our children are so that hopefully they can make decisions that better serve Georgia's children and families. I think that's the ultimate goal. Um, and so when we can get these, these data into the hands of more people, we hope that they become more effective. Um, but we, as Georgia Family Connection Partnership, um, we spend a lot of time training our network of collaboratives on using data and how they can use data in their communities to improve conditions for children and families. So that's really our role, um, in addition to, like I said, sharing these data with advocates and legislators and other decision makers. Was there any of the domains where you saw Georgia <laughs> drastically improve in? Because one could argue these I yeah. rankings are... <laughs> They're a little, they're a little concerning. I would say that the domain where we got the most amount better overall, if that makes sense, um, was the economic well-being rank. Like I said, we we improved, I think, pretty much statistically significantly across every indicator and in the economic well-being rank. Um, but again, we would expect that because the years that we're comparing this to was 2010 and 2010 was really the height of the recession. Mm -hmm. So if we had not improved significantly since the recession, that would be a problem. So yeah, where we see the largest improvements is in our economic well-being domain. And then we see more modest improvements across education, um, health and family and community. Rebecca Rice, the Georgia Kids Count Manager. We were talking about the annual Kids Count data book. Well, we'll have a link to the report on our website. Rebecca, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was good to see you again, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. At 80 years old, Representative John Lewis is known as the most prominent figures, one of the most prominent figures of the civil rights movement. 
Yeah, we know he was born in rural Alabama and the son of sharecroppers. But Congressman Lewis, he's endured a lot. He's also been called, quote, the conscious of the U.S. Congress and has dedicated his life to building what he calls the beloved community. Well, now there's a new documentary that aims to tell this story, blending some archival footage and stories from the 1960s to now. We used to march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. The whole time he was in the movement, it was frightening, knowing the danger, knowing what could happen. You cannot replace a John Lewis. He's the most courageous person I ever met. Too many people struggled and died to make it possible for every American to exercise their right to vote. He challenges the conscience of the Congress. Bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Forty years later, John Lewis continues to inspire us. Are you with me? Let me hear you. Wow. It's called John Lewis. Good trouble. And joining me now to share all of this and how this came to be, director Don Porter, who in her own regard is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Don, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Love being in Atlanta. All right. I can't wait to dig more into this, but I always like to begin when I speak with a creative, I always like to get their backstory. And I love to begin with this, which is tell me about your philosophy when it comes to the art of storytelling and the intersection of, of the two. Oh, um, you know, my background is a little unusual. Um, I began my career as a lawyer and uh, I worked for a firm. Um, I did litigation. I worked for a lot of newspapers, defending freedom of the press, that kind of thing. And um, But one of the things that you do, if you really think about it as a lawyer, is you make complicated things easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And you have to have you know, a clear way of expressing your message. So uh, as a very young lawyer, I took a lot of depositions. And depositions really is just listening. It's just listening to people really, really carefully and closely. So from there, I went to ABC News. I worked for, um, I watched producers and editors in edit rooms. And I saw them do the same thing. You know, at 9.30 in the morning, we'd be covering a breaking news story. And by six o'clock that night, it was on television. And I saw the power of story. Um, so, but, you know, over time, I wasn't seeing stories about people that look like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an African-American woman. And, and I felt like uh, I wanted to add my voice to that. So, so for me, um, the art of storytelling is really about centering the subject about getting to the point where they can tell their own story. It's not what I think of them, it's what they think of them. And so it's how do you create the environment where they can tell us what we need to know about them, where we can really listen. I always say that when I'm putting together a feature or when I'm talking to young journalists about how do you tell a story, and I always say you have to let it breathe, you know? Let it breathe. (laughs) I am all about the breath. <laughs> you know, I um, have worked with, uh, I, I like to work with the same people as much as possible. And I've worked with uh, the woman who edited this film, is a woman named Jessica Congdon. She also uh, edited the film about Dolores Huerta. Um, so she really had a good sense of the rhythm. Um, you know, she's, she's a musical person, but that breath, that is the most important thing that we can do. I think when people come to documentary, they're coming for a deeper story. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the quick, 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 
you know, like our lives are so fast. Like I, I really enjoy just what you're saying. Like, how can you sink into a story, you know? And the story of someone like John Lewis, there's a lot there. So take us through the time when you, you realize you're going to get this opportunity to share his story through his lens. Yeah, it was it was really exciting. I had just done a four part series for Netflix about Bobby Kennedy mm-hmm. and um, Congressman Lewis told a story that I had not heard before, which is that he was the person who organized the rally for Bobby Kennedy when he was running for president. He organized a rally in Indianapolis. It was on the day that Dr. King was murdered. And so uh, there was a lot of discussion among Kennedy's aides about, was it safe? Would there be riots? Um, Mm -hmm. Could he address the crowd? And a very young John Lewis in his 20s said, Senator, you must speak to the people. He was you know, speaking to a black audience. And it's well known as one of Kennedy's most affecting speeches. It's the only time he spoke about his brother, John F. Kennedy being murdered at the hands of a white man. Um, and so I, when Congressman Lewis told that story to us, I thought there are so, there's so much more to this man than that moment on the bridge. And, uh, you know, like, this is the moment to hear about that. So CNN Films came to me and and, uh, said, would you be interested in doing, you know, something about Congressman Lewis? And I was like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Um, Yeah, it was it was it was pretty much a dream come true. And I think the congressman, you know, you've mentioned he's been on your show. He he loves, you know, being in public and giving interviews and all of that. But I felt like um, he was really ready to tell his story start to finish. He's a very humble person. And so, um, you know, I think he, you know, approaching his 80th birthday, he was ready for that full look back. He had done a few, um, you know, there've been a few longer films, but with someone like Congressman Lewis, there's always room for more. And first of all, you had some amazing archival footage, some that I had never seen. And then, but we feel like we've seen everything as it relates to the civil rights movement. Were you surprised how much footage was out there that nobody had really seen that you sort of unearthed? You know, um, because of my experience with the Bobby Kennedy series, I, we knew that there was so much more. And that also had been one of my frustrations, you know, from with a background in journalism, um, knowing that the 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 our telling of the civil rights movement has flattened it has become slavery ends dr king marches mm-hmm. barack obama is elected and we see now the danger of not filling in the details about the work and the struggle and the sacrifice and the intention and strategy used in order to get to those achievements, but also the need to be vigilant and and continue working. So we had unearthed, I work with the same archivist. He had been kind of slowly collecting these just gems. Um, And so by the time CNN came to us, we it had already been kind of rattling around in my mind. And one of the things I really, really wanted to do with this film was to back us up from that moment on the bridge. So, mm. you know, to show like what these young people, they were, you know, 19 years old, Congressman Lewis sits, organizes with Diane Nash and the other leaders. They organize uh, with, you know, some of the people on the ground in Nashville to desegregate, um, you know, that, that downtown area. And, Seeing that, I wanted to show how much planning 
intelligence and political strategy went into that. They did not just show up mm -hmm. on, you know, at those lunch counters. They had a plan, they had a process, they worked it through and they executed it beautifully. So that was part of the intention is showing showing that. And, and uh, you know, that footage is really moving. It, it feels to me like um, th this is what, you know, black people have inherited this organi this organizing. We all know of like the links or like, you know, <laughs> black women who, if they wanted to get to the moon faster, they should have called like <laughs> some black grandmothers because they can organize everything. Yeah. But these children learned at the at the feet of their grandmothers, um, and they learned how to organize. So, um, you know that it was important to me to show that that work. And you also intertwine with the archival footage, and you have some interviews. Seeing the late U.S. Representative Elijah Cummings, you know, who's, who's since passed on, um, and seeing someone like him, you know, talk about John Lewis and his relationship with John Lewis. You know, I, I, well, I can start with what it means for me, um, because uh, Representative Cummings, that was the first interview we did. And we did not realize at the time that his health was so poor. Um, so he, he was in the middle of, uh, you know, it was really, really busy. Like his workload was just astounding, the, the amount of, of complicated issues he was dealing with. And he walked across the Capitol into the office to do our our interview and he sat down and he gave us quite a bit of time um to do this interview and he was just so um full of life and he uh just a master storyteller but my favorite part was um he you know he he said well you know i'm always mistaken for john yeah. and i said congressman are you telling me you impersonate john lewis <laughs> and he just gave the biggest laugh and then he tells that story about he doesn't want to disappoint people who agree. So he's taken a lot Such of pictures, pictures. <laughs> pretending he's John Lewis, you know, mm. because people are like, you know, this is the famous congressman. And then he says the line that still just, you know, pierces my heart, which is, um, but he's uh, happy to be mistaken for a great man. And of course, we know that he is, he was a great man. So um, I really love, you know, this, this uh, opportunity for black men to show their love, affection and admiration for one another. This is not, um, and uh, Representative Clyburn does the same thing mm -hmm. and Sheila Jackson Lee does the same thing. So, you know, I, I feel like it's um, as our, our young people are coming up and, and figuring out their organizing strategy. Um, there's a lot of competition that happens, you know, and people vying for the center. And the thing about Congressman Lewis is he, he wasn't trying to be the leader of anything. He was just really good at it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, Andy Young told us like, John was always hanging back. Mm -hmm. And then people kept pushing him forward and he, you know, would answer the call. But that interview is, um, you know, one of my favorite of all the interviews I've ever done in my whole life. Was there someone that you wanted to get that you couldn't? Um, we were trying really hard to get President Obama and he was traveling and, and uh, we, we couldn't work that out. So but we found en enough footage to to do. Um, there were also some um people who were in the movement who I would have liked to have the opportunity to to speak with. You know, you 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 have a schedule, you have a budget, you have I live in California, you know, like 
you know, all of those um, things. It's kind of amazing that any movie actually gets, <laughs> gets made. Um, but um, we were we were just really grateful. You know, uh, Secretary Clinton gave us an interview. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton gave us an interview. So um, we were like, we have an embarrassment of riches. And, uh, you know, just but there there could be you know there since the movies come out now everybody's like oh i have a story i'm like where were y'all when i was <laughs> yeah i i, tr- I called your office <laughs> i called your office so um so we're grateful to the people who who figured it out um and then i invite the next filmmaker do those interviews mm-hmm. you know like like nobody occupies the field in film or radio or television They're, these lives are rich and and full and and they deserve their stories interpreted by many people. So when it came down to editing, then I imagine there was a lot that was that was left out. Um, there was. <laughs> we started with a three-hour cut. <laughs> that's, um, but you know what, Donna? I got to admit, that's pretty good. That's not bad. That's not right? bad. It's yeah. not bad. And then, um, you know, we got it down to two. And then I was ready to fight. You know, I was yeah. like, I cannot cut a frame. Um, so... So, you know, there's there's more to be said, I will say that. Um, but I I also felt like, you know, we, we did our best to do the essence of the story I wanted to tell, which is I really wanted to focus on his current activity mm-hmm. on, you know, we know him uh, from that moment on the bridge. Um, we know, you know, some people know, some people don't know though, that he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington mm-hmm. um, or that, you know, he was, instrumental in organizing and you know the the freedom rides i mean john lewis just he just kept walking into the fire mm-hmm. and and you know seeing that and putting it all together but also understanding how that early life influenced who he is today you know so when he speaks to uh alexandria ocasio cortez or the squad they they listen with a different ear because mm-hmm. they know he comes from those activist streets. He understands them. They, they share a DNA. So I wanted to focus too on you know the legacy that he's leaving to our to our young people, which is so great. What's next for you? Give our listeners a little preview. We won't, uh, we won't tell I, anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody except for all of Metro Atlanta. <laughs> um, I am no. I'm very proud of this next project. Um, I, I'm finishing, you hear that knock wood? I am finishing um, a a feature film for Focus Features about President Obama's White House photographer, Pete Sousa, who took 2 million photographs and was with President Obama, you know, pretty much every day of his eight years in service. So, you know, they tell a story about not just President Obama, but about the office of the presidency and what it takes to be a great leader um, and and how serious the issues are, but they also show a caring, empathetic, um, curious, and uh, strong leadership style that uh, I, I think we will all. Well, I will say I am missing desperately, and uh, hope to see see again. So uh, we are very excited about that. Focus Features is really putting a lot of muscle behind this film, and we will release it before the election, so everyone can see what they're missing. When we started this conversation, I asked you about your approach as a storyteller. So now, when you look at John Lewis' Good Trouble, do you try to give an assessment? Do you reflect, I could have done this, I should have did that? Or the product, it is what it is, and 
Now it's left up to the viewer for what, whatever their takeaway is going to be. Um, it's a combination of both. You know, I, I am very much of the feeling that I, I present what I can is, is do, you know, as well as I can. And I'm happy whatever message you take from the film, I am happy. If it struck you, if it made you think, if it made you feel, then that's a success. But there's always more you could have done. We could have cut this film, you know, nine ways till Sunday. So um, I'm, I'm very much a, oh, I wish I'd, you know, kind of person. So I, I'm working on that in therapy. <laughs> but uh, but that's the arts right yeah. is is and that is the beauty of creativity is there an infinite numbers of ways to do x y or z and so i'm just part glad and you know to be part of a creative community where where i get to to you know throw my hat in the ring and and say what i have to say and then you know let people take it from there so but i do hope people will I've heard a lot of people say they've watched it with their family, they watch with their kids. Um, you know that that one thing we can all take from John Lewis is an example of a, po- a a positive person in government. They are there. They are there are people who are working for the right reasons, and I hope that this will uh, inspire people's faith in our government once again. Don Porter, director of the film John Lewis, Good Trouble. Don, I always enjoy talking to another creative, another storyteller. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. This has been a real pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.